This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Analyzing Everton. I'm David Hughes and I'm joined by Josh Williams. Um, Josh, we've just come off one podcast onto another, uh, but for the benefit of the thousands and thousands listening at home, how are you? <laughs> you know what? I, I want to say that like I'm terrible or something like that, but... Just to mix it up. Mix it, I seem to be relatively level-headed, I seem to be relatively grounded, so each week I'm just very much okay. Not great, not terrible, it's just sounds... <laughs> you don't you don't run away with the highs, but you don't get low off the lows, do you, mate? Exactly, yeah. A little bit rougher than he says in that regard. <laughs> Couldn't have thought of an event mind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was referring to a Newcastle manager there, mate. So yeah, uh, well, well played, well played. And a good segue into uh, into today's show, because obviously Evan played Newcastle on the weekend. Um, suffered a 2-1 defeat. Uh, we'll touch on that shortly. Um, and of course, there's then Manchester United coming this weekend, which uh, I, I don't know. I suppose on paper, you'd say it's not getting any easier, but you know, Manchester United are very strange this season. So we'll, we'll, we'll save that conversation for a little bit later in the show. But we'll, we'll start with Newcastle, Josh. Um, you know, Everton suffered back to back defeats. Um, first time this season. First time Carlo Ancelotti suffered back-to-back defeats as Everton manager. And actually the first time he suffered back-to-back defeats since 2014. Um, so it was a very rare occasion for for both Everton this season and, and the manager. But on the whole, it kind of felt about right, didn't it, when you were watching the game? Um, did you get to catch the Everton game? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, because it wasn't, it wasn't a great watch. <laughs> no, it wasn't at all. Uh, especially for if you're neutral, um, I could. Have, in fact, that goes fast. It's probably dire, especially that first first half. To be honest, I don't. I don't remember it being a great day for football. Um, I think who played after Everton? Uh, United Arsenal. It was, wasn't it? And it was. Mm. Uh, that, that was relatively similar in terms of just. All the play was just seems to be in the middle third, and um, neither teams seem to be doing that really massive when it comes to actually moving the needle towards winning the game and stuff like that and picking up three points. Mm, yeah, I agree. That's, I, I do. Um, the game kind of, you know, it, it, it did feel, and this was how, how we painted the game, but it felt like the, the sort of game where it was going to be really tight. Um, and you probably needed to score first, and whoever scored first to go on to win it. So, obviously, when uh, Newcastle won the penalty, converted it, that really kind of felt like that, to be honest. I know there was a little bit more drama in the sense that they, they got a second and Everton pulled one back later on, but it did very much feel like the decisive blow uh, at 1-1, I thought. Um, but, yeah, obviously, it turned out to be a 2-1 defeat. Um, the expected goals on the day had... <laughs> unbelievably Steve Bruce Bruce Ball not only won the game but um, they actually performed better in terms of the XG on the day as well um, they posted an XG of 2.5 versus Evans 1.2 um, it was interesting they had fewer shots both 
um on the day and shots on target so they had um three shots on target nine overall everton had four shots on target and 15 overall um but you know by, by Everton standards this season that's not really a lot josh if you were to just glance at those numbers you'd probably certainly the expected numbers uh you'd probably be anticipating it was a little bit of a different game than it actually was wouldn't you yeah, I was a little bit surprised to be honest when you said that then, but I've just checked the shot map and um, obviously Newcastle got a penalty. Mm. So that's 0.76 XG. Mm. And then the late, I think it was a, was it a goal, yeah, the late Callum Wilson goal, which mm. was virtually a tapping, wasn't it? But yeah. Just hasn't got that down as 0.96, which is about as high as you're ever going to see, really. 96% of a goal. Um that and actually was what I thought, by the way. I looked at them start this morning and I, I said that off the top of my head, I think that's the highest XG I've ever seen for the shot. Yeah, could be, yeah. I mean it was it was virtually on the goal line, wasn't it? So but if you if you look at the race map, you know, the, the timing chart of the, the expected goals that Newcastle's does just receive two major boosts, two major bumps for the the penalty and the the, the late tapping. Other than that. I don't think there was much to separate both sides at all, really. Um, it, it was very relatively even game. Both sides were looking to take many risks in attack and maybe on the day because of the injuries that Everton had. Maybe Newcastle just had that little bit more quality maybe in the in, in the final third when when they eventually did get into those areas. Yeah, I agree. It's... Um... <coughs> It's it. It was kind of a performance that you know mirrored those of last year, where you you wouldn't say Everton were necessarily by far the second best team, um, but you just you don't do enough to win it, and therefore you leave you open the door for uh, elements of chance, don't you really? And obviously, yeah. other factors that can influence the results. One of which on this occasion was a penalty. You know, you can see the really stupid penalty. Um, and you go a goal behind, and and that that's what happens. You know that was often the the issue with Everton Silver, where you know, sorry Silver's Everton, where you wasn't necessarily getting turned over week in week out, but you just wasn't doing enough to to win the game. And then if bad to luck, take, yeah, to take care of the result basically. Yeah, um, like I think I think the penalty Everton did concede was quite unfortunate. To be honest, it was a bit of an unlucky one. But at the same time, I remember just thinking to myself, like, you know, if you play like the way that you have for an hour, you, you have not done enough when it comes to winning the game. So you, you are open to, to moments like that, just punishing you and taking even a point away from you. And that's why the performance numbers that we look into every single week are so important, because the, the better your performance numbers are, the less open you are to suffering from the elements of chance. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. Um, obviously, the, the the kind of pre-match show, you know, last week's show, the analysing Everton, uh, we we recorded before the press conference uh, in which Ancelotti confirmed that James Rodriguez was actually going to miss the game through injury. Um, which the way it played out, Josh, it was kind of we um, we previewed a. And Everton sad without James Rodriguez for Southampton, and then he went and uh, ended up making that game. 
we then previewed Newcastle with the uh, basis that he was on the pitch and he wasn't. So I, I suppose in a in a roundabout way, we did cover both bases there. Um, but obviously that was a huge blow because Everton then started the game with without four of their best players. You know, no Richarlison, no James, uh, no Seamus Coleman, who's obviously been really good again this season, uh, and no Luca Dean. So I think the the minute that really settled and you thought. Uh, this is never signed without those players. You knew it was going to be a big task. And I think the performance on the whole um, basically reaffirmed our points from last week, um, where beyond maybe a, a first 11 or 12 players, there just isn't enough quality in Everton. And you, you've you said before, haven't you, that you think that's why, as opposed to maybe being a side who you know, push for top five, Everton might be between like eighth and fifth because... Because they just haven't got the strength and depth. Yeah, this this is why I um, quite reluctantly posted that did um, that did finish. I think I think I said if they finished eighth or above, it would be a great season. And that that's not like you know dampening any dreams or anything like that. That was just a case of like despite the quality Everton have brought in, um, it's it still is the same side, but with those few players added. Those few players are probably unlikely to play every single week. And when they don't, Everton will be back to the team that posted a, a goal difference last season. I think it was minus 12 or minus mm. 7 or something like that. So, I mean, they're still sitting on minus uh, plus 4 at the minute. So, they are, they are doing better. But it is a case of, like, you know, how much does one signing, one transfer have? How much of an impact does does that one player have on the points total of a team by the end of the season? Certainly mm. with Hamas Rodriguez, it was looking like it was going to be quite a dramatic impact. But for that dramatic impact just to stretch over a 30-game season, he has to play most games. And obviously at the minute he's got a bit of a a bit of an issue. I'm not sure if he's gonna be back for the weekend, but he's uh, he's quite integral. And then Alan and Decore. Obviously, good players, but I think they're probably going to have less of an impact on on Everton's goal difference than, than a player like Hamas Rodriguez is. And then if you take Richarlison out, who's in, who's uh, suspended, and you take Luca Dean out and, and players like that, you know you're, you're losing a lot of 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 what you have there to to pick up three points to pick up wins. So this is where over the course of a long season, especially once the winter months start to come around, and and there's a game every three days, this is where it starts impacting. You know, yeah, your overall points total and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see see how Everton cope in the, in the next few months. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's um, you know, without those players, it does for me. I think with everybody available and fit, I personally see Everton as a side that could be within the top six, uh, yeah, based on what we've seen. But then, without those players, certainly the side that thought lined up against Newcastle. That to me is very much a, a side that could finish twelfth in the table, like they did last season. Um, I think the the, the the gulf in quality without those players is, is that big. Um, and I think you know the what, it, 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 it's not just the, those players; it's also the fact that the, it's really difficult to get a system out of those players that that complements each player on the pitch. Um, a lot of the players seem to be. Um, I think this, the phrase is much of a muchness sort of thing. Like, it's kind of a bit similar 
a bit beige. <laughs> um, seems to be a term we use quite frequently. Uh, especially when we talk about Everton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just seems to be. Um, like I, I don't know about you, but I, I did question his, his selection once again. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to talk about it, but I mean, initially when I saw the lineup, I was like, I was like, what's he going to do there? What what, what shapes you going to use there? But I think it ended up being a bit of a Christmas tree, didn't it? Mm. Um, four, three, two, one. But with Andre Gomez is a, a number ten of sorts, which I thought I just couldn't get my head around personally. God, don't even start me on Gomez. We are going to have to address that, sadly. Um, but yeah, and just on your point about the team selection, I, I, I do think it was wrong. I think there was there was no width, uh, there was no real penetration at all, was there? Um, you know, you basically got a, a fairly, I guess you'd say, a fairly conservative midfield three. Um, Delph. Not not really known for his ball carrying abilities, and you know, was, although he, he, I think he is actually a decent passer. He's not; he can't really penetrate in that way. Allen's more there to for what he brings off the ball then on it, and, and I think the core obviously can't carry the ball, but he can't do it on his own. And then, yeah, as you say, in front of him, you've got Gomez, who who isn't much of a runner at all. At Sigurdsson isn't either, and it, it just the, the team seems to lack a lot. I don't know if maybe he was hoping to have a little bit more from Nkunku and um, Kenny on the on, in the wing-back positions, but I think when you look at the way Newcastle is set up, you know, they play 5-3-2. Even if you bypass the the wide midfielder or, you know, the midfielder closest to you, you, you're then getting met with a... Oh, sorry, even if you bypass the wing-back, you're still then getting met with a centre-back, aren't you? Because it's, it's a three-man... Uh, defense, so it's just it's really difficult to expect one player to be able to impact the game from an attacking point of view when you've got to he's got to try and bypass the wing back and then he's got to try and bypass bypass the you know the wider centre back who's who's waiting behind. So I do think he got it wrong. I think you can say a player's got it, you know, a, a manager's got it wrong without suddenly you know wanting them out and questioning if he should have the job and things. It's it's definitely not that extreme, but I think on the day you do have to say it's 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 the wrong selection. Yeah, I mean it's it it looks really silly of us almost to be speaking about this question and you know the selections of of Carlo Ancelotti and stuff like that, and it looks a bit like hindsight as well. But it was my first thought, and I feel like to be honest, I feel like what he might have done was just almost play his best. 11 players um, mm. rather than his best 11 if you know what I mean yeah I get you so um, it's, rather than from a tactical point of view the best 11 he's just gone for his best 11 players and hopefully they can produce yeah, something yeah I think Louis Van Gaal come out with a quote once and I see I think he said um, I don't need the 11 best I need the best 11 and I think mm. if, if you look at the team that he selected you know that, that midfield that you mentioned the Conservative midfield Delph Allen and Decore that is fine, depending on what's surrounding it. But when you've got ahead of that, Andre Gomez and Sigurdsson, and behind it, providing the width, Nkunku, who, to be fair, is a talent, and John Joe Kenny, you just, um, you're just you probably going to struggle to penetrate there overall. Um, yeah. I think you're going to encounter issues, and I think, the the use of Gomez in particular, I could couldn't get my head around, um, because he he did play in kind of a number ten type role ahead of Delph, um, but 
behind Calvert-Lewin. Um, and I just think, although he hasn't been great, you have a Wobie on the bench there. Um, and you've also got Bernard, who, I, in my opinion, is another player who's more suited to that type of role, even though I don't particularly think he's a world beater whatsoever. I think he's more of a number 10. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> that's not Dave Barton for the listeners. That's uh... <laughs> Hopefully we can cut that out, but if it stays in, I apologise to anyone having to listen to that. Yeah. It's all right. I think looking at his team, yeah, just I think Gomez as a ten, I, I really couldn't get my head around. I thought, I thought it would be more suited to it. I thought Bernard would more, was more suited to it. And if you want a bit of penetration, a bit of directness, you know, we spoke last week about him. You got Anthony Gordon there as well, whereas I think Gomez is just very much focused on safety, very much focused on maybe ball retention, um, but very little in terms of adding. Adding goals, you know, adding chances, adding stuff that's meaningful. So yeah, to, to use him as a number ten, which is kind of an output position, you know, a, a position that where you, whereby you need to deliver a bit more. I wouldn't have done that. Personally. No, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's been a, a discussion behind the scenes, and he he's been trying to pitch himself as a player who can influence the game in that way. But I mean, for me. If there was, I mean, there shouldn't be any sort of debate about it now. But if there was, I feel like it, it you know, it should be case closed. I don't think Gomez does enough. Um, I appreciate he's in a different position to what he's, what he's, I guess, accustomed to. Although I, I still don't know his best position. Uh, maybe somewhere deeper on the pitch. But you know, and the on the Echo, I wrote a piece about him this week. I was, well, I was asked to write a piece about him. I was a little bit reluctant at first because. I spoke to you, didn't I, Josh? And I said, I've, I think I've already wrote a piece like this about um, about Gomez twice already, but yeah. I've been asked again. It was basically just, you know, um, what he offered in that game and what he offers in general. Um, I mean, some numbers from that piece, you know, he, he, I think he was brought off just after the hour mark. Up until that point, he'd made just one tackle um, and two successful possession pressures out of 16 attempts. So, you know, that's the kind of pressure in their opponents, maybe within a press to win the ball. But, you know, a success rate of around 12% is is pretty poor. And that kind of goes with what we see on the pitch. He does seem to be bypassed quite easily. Um, he completed just 22 passes in the match. And that was, interestingly, four fewer than Bernard, who I think come on in his position. He completed 26, just despite playing, you know, half the minutes that... Gomez did um, and even when it comes to ball carries you know we know this isn't his game but I think he managed to progress the ball 50 yards towards the Newcastle goal altogether that's a combined 50 yards and Wobie was on the pitch for something like 13 minutes and he progressed at 64 yards um, and it Josh another thing as well which is just you know I, I must admit I was having a cup of tea at the time they spat it all over the laptop Um <laughs> I now appreciate this isn't Gomez's game, but he hasn't had a shot on target since the um, 18-19 season. Yeah. Which, as I said, I appreciate that's not his game, but I think you could probably look at any other Everton midfielder in that time. He's at, they've at least you know hit that hit the target once. You know, 
the, the, he's he, he's in advanced position and it opens up for him. He, he has a shot on goal. You know, this is this is it. Gomez just doesn't seem to have any of that. He doesn't seem to really um, penetrate with his passing. You know, he doesn't offer much of it. He doesn't offer much in terms of creation, in terms of goal threat. It, he doesn't offer it a lot off the ball. And there's a narrative that it's all since his injury and he's done really well to come back. But, you know, I feel like you're a good person to talk to, Josh, because you obviously, you, we do the same role. You know, we talk about football a hundred times a day. Um, we talk about every team, Everton, Liverpool, you know, most teams talk about players. You've obviously would have kept, maybe not as a close eye as I have, but you would have been looking at Gomez over the, his time at Everton. I mean, are you seeing that much difference in this Gomez compared to the Gomez before the injury? Um, no, he's always he's always seemed a, a similar player for me. He's he's always seemed to be one of those players who, when when it comes to offering a difference to your goal difference. So whether that, which is the crux of essentially what a player is supposed to do, really, when you actually drum it down. Uh, dumb it down in, into like what a player's bought to do. Most players are bought to improve your goal difference, whether that be on the attacking side or the defensive side of the game. And I think Andre Gomez has always just come across as a bit of a a bit of a zero zero man. Just kind of like he won't he won't really give you much of a positive boost on that. Probably won't give you a negative boost either. So he's kind of just like a bit of a steady, steady type of player. He can clearly, I mean, I've heard, I've heard he's dedicated professional and all that sort of stuff. So he's probably liked by the majority of of head coaches who come in, like by um, fans as well. To be fair, he does a lot of good stuff off the pitch. Um, yeah, I mean that, I don't that, that sort of thing, combined with not having a negative impact on 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 the goal difference of a team. Maybe results in his his um the word like the, the opinions of him being quite always oh, oh, fine. He's never really the brunt of of the criticism. He's never really majorly to blame. He's just another player who didn't really do that much. But, but I think people are more inclined to look at those who are expected to do more who didn't do much. That they they will get more criticism than Gomez. I mean. Just looking at his numbers here for, for, for the Newcastle game, um, zero passes into the penalty box and zero progressive passes as well. Um, so a progressive pass, for those that aren't aware, the definition is a completed pass that moves the ball towards the opponent's goal at least 10 yards from its furthest point in the last six passes. Or a completed pass into the penalty box, so it's kind of like a um, I don't know if you, if you think of those line breaking passes, those vertical line breaking passes that move, that kind of move you from your midfield to the final third and one pass sort of thing. It, it's that sort of stuff. Um, I'm looking at the Everton team on the day. He posted zero alongside Calvert Lewin, who is a striker. Bit tricky for him to post any progressive passes considering his position. And considering he's usually the highest player in the team, um, Jen Tosin, who played, I'm not sure how many 20, 22 minutes, and again was a striker. Mm. And Robin they're meant to be on the end of them, aren't they? They're meant to be on yeah. the end of these passes, yeah. Yeah, and Robin Olsen, the goalkeeper. Mm. So 
it doesn't bode particularly well for him in terms of moving the ball forward, moving his team closer to goal. Um, he played one pass into the final third. Sigurdsson wasn't much better, but just was a bit better. So he found a penalty box once, one progressive pass, uh, assisted two shots, Gomez assisted one. But in this situation, I must be honest, rather than me looking at Gomez and just saying he's a he's a bad player or something like that, this this one for me is more just he shouldn't have been used like like this for this game. He's just not this type of player. If anything, he would be suited to forming part of the midfield three that Ancelotti used if everyone around that midfield three was a bit of an output merchant. So mm. if Everton had, you know, a few attackers ahead of Gomez who were likely to deliver, maybe fullbacks that are likely to deliver, and then as a result, the onus is on him less to to move Everton towards winning, basically. Mm. Um, but when an onus is on him, when, he, when he's needed for that sort of thing, he just he's not that type of player. He doesn't think he ever will be. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that that's it, and, and it does kind of tie into the, you know, the previous point that because I do agree, you know, this isn't as strong. This it, it was always going to be a little bit of a struggle for him to perform at whatever his best is because he's he played out of position. So it does go back to the previous point we made that perhaps the team selection on the day was wrong. For me, I didn't think it needed to be that complex. I felt felt like in the first few games, Everton had a structure that was working. And okay, it was built around key personnel, you know, Hammers, Richards and things. But I think to keep it simple, to keep things as they were, you just, I would have went Gordon on the left in Richardson's place because he's the most similar profile in terms of being penetrative, have some skill, a goal threat, you know, the way he cuts in, but he also creates chances as well. Um, and then I think on the right, you put Awobi there. Thought Awobi, he come on there or there about it against Newcastle and looked fairly um, fairly sharp. Obviously, he actually registered an assist for Calvert-Lewin with a great through ball. You know, that right side, we've already said, it, that isn't a traditional right winger position. It isn't there for, you know, someone to with loads of skill and to drive to the byline or, you know, to drive at defenders and cut in. Because James Rodriguez doesn't do that. He's kind of converted that into Everton's equivalent of a number 10. So, in my opinion, you just kept it simple, played a 4-3-3 without those two on the pitch. You put Gordon out there on the left. I will be on the right. Not I will be on the left. I will be on the right because I will be played on the left, didn't play well. But as we're trying to explain now, you know, his, his profile's better for that right. So, put him on the right and just go with that for the for the two games or the Newcastle game. I think that's straightforward. Um, and I think you get that, the kind of stuff that, okay, you're not going to be able to replicate the performances of a Charles and Wolby, of course not, because they're, they're great players. But I think that just doing that, you would have kind of kept the same structure at very least instead. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, you know, he kind of went with what he did. And I think the problem is you then have to rely on, you know, the term that we, we said earlier, um, you know, pushing the needle towards victory. I think Everton have a number of these players in the squad that just don't do that. Um, I think Gomez is one. Sigurdsson is another. And people might be thinking that I'm letting Sigurdsson get off with it. We're not. But you made a really good point there. I just want to pick up on, Josh, where you said, like, 
other players get criticised more than the likes of Gomez because they they have more expectancy around them. I think Sigurdsson is one of them. So us sitting here now saying Sigurdsson isn't doing enough. That, you know, we've been saying this for two or three years. It's it's a redundant argument. We already know he doesn't do enough. Um, but yeah, they, just on the whole, it felt like Evan were forced to rely on too many of these players that don't really do enough to influence the results. Not just on Sunday, but probably in the Southampton game as well. And as a result, it shouldn't really be a surprise that he couldn't couldn't get a win in either. I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would agree with everything you just said there. That's that's also how I would have used the squad um, without Jars and without Hamas Rodriguez. I think if you take those players out and replace them with the players that have been used since, um, it just feels like you, you're losing so much risk. And you're replacing that with um, safety, really. Players mm. who, who are more focused on keeping the ball than, than doing something that's going to deliver three points. Um, like, like, Iwobi might lose the ball quite frequently. Gordon might be really, really direct. But they're both players that at least would have kept the same, roughly the same dynamic, roughly the same degree of risk compared to Richarlison and Hamas. Mm. Um, but he opted to. You know, rip, basically rip it up and start again without those players. Went for the Christmas tree, the wrong players in the Christmas tree for me. Um, as I said earlier, using his 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 um eleven best rather than his best eleven. And uh, yeah, it's, I don't. I think I'm not sure if he'll if he if he'll appreciate it now, but I think he should be looking back at that and thinking, you know, I shouldn't have done that maybe. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I do wonder what's going on with Gordon. That you know, this isn't the only stuff that we cover, um, so I won't I won't dwell on it. But you know, I know he did knock on Ancelotti's door, didn't he, a few, last month and kind of, or it might have been September, on the back of some good displays and say, you know, when am I kind of getting a chance? And Ancelotti really can't praise them for it in the in, in the media, but then he, he's hardly kicked the ball since and. I don't know if maybe it's Ancelotti telling them us one thing, but maybe he didn't like that because he hasn't been playing. I think the, over these last couple of weeks, he would have been perfect to, to use him. Um, but yeah, well, one one kind of positive, well, I say positive, but one thing I do want to comment on was obviously Pickford was dropped as well um, for Olsen. Um, and okay, you can see it's two on the day, but... I, th- I thought certainly in the things that you can't measure in numbers, you know, such as composure, calmness, and stuff. I thought he looked quite decent, Josh. I thought he had a decent game, and he made a really good save in the first half from Callum Wilson. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I guess what I'd say is I, I quite liked his performance. No, I was the same. Um, I think if a goalkeeper you know, struggles to make saves or, or, or concedes a few goals, at, at least that's, at least he's kind of struggled doing his, his job almost, whereas I think I think Pickford in the past 18 months or so has, has provided Everton with problems outside of goalkeeping, just just with his, his general decision-making, his, um, I think he's a little bit eccentric sometimes. I think Olsen stayed under the radar. He stayed predictable and, and I think that I think that's what you want f- from a goalkeeper I think he generally made saves you'd expect him to make and the saves you wouldn't expect him to make 
he conceded, uh, would that be in a penalty and an absolute tapping? Mm. Uh, but outside of that, you know, I was a lot more relaxed watching him than I was with Pickford. I don't like my keepers to be unpredictable. Pickford for me is. Um, okay, Pickford's maybe more capable of a dramatic save. Maybe he's more capable of a more accurate goal kick, that sort of stuff. Maybe he's even a bit more of a talker, mm. but he's a bit more of a loose cannon. And I think, um, I just think teams team benefit from keepers that stay stay under the radar and kind of offer like a silent, a silent but assured presence. And mm. I think Olsen did that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it, it made me kind of have a quick, quick gander at his numbers. Um, just to get a feel for you know how how good he is, I guess. Um, and there's a sample of the last two seasons uh, where he was at Roma, and I think he was at maybe somewhere like Calgary. Uh, I, I, I might, I can't remember. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, I had a quick look, and his post shot expected goals it was, against it was Cal- Calgary. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I think it was on loan, wasn't it? Um, but his, his post shots expected goals against in that period plus Sunday's game. So a sample of about two and a bit seasons uh, was 62.4. Uh, and in that time, he conceded 69 goals. So that's an uh, underperformance, about 6.6 goals, which doesn't really look that remarkable. To be honest, it's actually, it, it, it looks a little bit below average. Um for comparison, in that same time, so last two seasons plus what's happened so far this season, Pickford's uh, post-shot expected goals against is uh, 103.9 uh, and he's conceded 111 goals. So that's uh, underperformance of up to 7.1. So there's not a lot of difference between the two, really, um, which says that you know over a longer period, also maybe you know an, an average keeper at best. Yeah, but I think I think the difference in that though, you, you you could argue that what you're getting from that is that when it comes to shot stopping, they're roughly along the same lines, roughly on the same level almost. Mm. But then once you factor in that Olsen isn't eccentric in his actions and and isn't so much of a type as to just um. You know, just do something out the ordinary, just something that's unnecessary. For me, he's, he edges it a little bit, but um, mm. I think Angelotti's already said, hasn't he, which I thought was quite interesting, that Pickford's coming straight back in. Yeah, again, I just didn't... Uh, it wasn't... It was, it why, was, why did he drop him then? Was that because was that it was Newcastle? I don't know. It, it, I, yeah, reading between the lines, potentially, because it's quite an, an emotional game, isn't it, for Pickford? Um, although... How emotional is a game when there's no fans there in, from that perspective? Because well, it's not like that. Go on, sorry. I was going to say, maybe that sums him up. The fact that where did you just use emotional? He's, mm. he's too much of an emotional player for me. I don't like my keepers to be like that. Um, mm. It's uh, it, To an extent, I suppose it's personal preference, but also looked a lot more almost robotic. And and, and that's, that's fine, I think, from a goalkeeper. From a goalkeeper, you, you, you almost... Don't want that that character to, to show out. You want you want him to just kind of do his job, and no one talk about him at the end of the game. 
Yeah, yeah, that yeah, you do. You know, you want you want them to be there, but not really be the headlines, um, unless they have a really good game. But it's yeah, very rare. But yeah, I did. I thought it was bizarre by Ancelotti. No, because. I think he could have quite easily dropped them, said behind the scenes that he might be coming back in, but I don't think he needs to say about anything on the media because, um, yeah, Olsen did quite well, but that's not a... At the end of the day, you know, Ancelotti's an expert in terms of dealing with characters, so I think he's probably better suited to formulate these plans than we are to comment on them, so I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. Um, but, yeah, obviously, disappointing defeat, but... I think the fallout has been pretty level-headed and the reason why is pretty much for everything we've just said, you know, without the best players, probably the, you know, four of Evans' best players, without them all, um, it's going to be difficult to win games like that. Still, you know, three points off uh, Liverpool, who are top of the table in the top four. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, it, there's no room to get, you, you could still, if you go on, put a good decent run together then you'll still be saying it's been a really good start to the season so um but annoyingly josh we've got another international break going up um and before that everton have got manchester united at goodison park on saturday um annoyingly manchester united played tonight in the champions league so you know we're going to miss out on that a little bit uh, maybe we would have got a, a, another look at them there so um, people who are listening may have watched that game tonight. But just in general, Josh, maybe just with more of a focus on the league, what's your, what's your thoughts of United uh, this season? To be honest, I find I find the way they run as a club really, really annoying. And it's weird because I am obviously from Liverpool and I'm a Liverpool fan, so I suppose technically I don't want them to succeed. Um, but at the same time, I appreciate a club that is well run. I appreciate a club that knows what they're doing. And they just seem to keep doing exactly this. This this seems to be a standard, um, like, second season. I know it's, I know we got the job halfway through his initial season, but this seems to be the, the standard second season for a new manager for them, whereby... Initially, they buy everyone he wants. He gets what he wants. Second season, they don't. So the team regresses. They don't push on. And he ends up getting sacked. And then the cycle restarts. That that seems to be how it keeps getting done. Happened with Mourinho. Um, and it's just... It's just... It's a, a getting a bit boring. Um, and they, they, but they don't seem to be... Like any other wiser that it's that it's happening, they seem to be um, looking at the manager as as the problem. Looking at the manager is the thing that needs to change, rather than looking at the source of the problem. Um, and I think this is just very much what's happening. It, it, this is very this is very much what's happening again in terms of getting to the second season. Like if if, if they went out in the summer and bought Sancho. It would have given the club a, a massive boost, not just on the pitch, but just in terms of intent and stuff like that. And considering what Liverpool look like, what City look like, the league looks a bit mental this year, a little bit. And Manchester United, obviously from from lockdown onwards last season, from the from Bruno Fernandez's arrival onwards, they did look like they had a bit about them. They could have really had a go at it this season, mm-hmm. but just 
because of how they do things, because of, you know, they went and bought Donny van der Beek, who in isolation is a good player. But in terms of Manchester United, they do not need a player like that. It, no. it, it reminds me a little bit of Everton, to be honest, when it comes mm. to Everton buying three number 10s a few years back. Mm. Um, they've now one of, one of them did come from Ajax as well, ironically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've now got van der Beek, who is a 10, really. They've got Fernandez, who's a 10. And they've got Pogba, who's not really a 10, but requires the same license as a 10 in terms of the positional freedom, the security behind them. So it, it, it and he's been given Edison Cavani, who uh, hasn't had a call for six months. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just annoying how, how they don't seem to recognize their own flaws. Mm, yeah, I agree. That, um, you know, they just, they, I think they're just a team lacking direction, really, um, from top to bottom, and uh, it's. At times I thought, okay, they're on the right track. And now again, I'm just a bit like, well, I don't know if they are. After that summer, you know, I, I did expect them to sign Sancho. I expect them to be a a force this season. Maybe not in terms of pushing Liverpool and City for the title, but certainly, you know, to the third best team. I know they were the third best team last season in terms of the table, but I think performance-wise, it could have went either way. If there would have been another five games of last season, there's no guarantee they would have finished third. Is probably the best way I could explain it. Um, this season, they didn't really recruit. Sorry, in the summer, they didn't recruit that well, I don't think. Um, they've started the season with uh, only one, no, two wins, uh, one draw and three defeats, you know, which which isn't great, really. In terms of the underlying numbers, um, the 12th for goals scored, 14th for goals against. Uh, ranked 14th in terms of XG, um, a 12th for XG against um, shots. They rank 11th, and I know because we spoke about it earlier. They've got the the worst uh, expected goals per shot average in the division, which says you know not only are they mid ranking for shots attempted, but those shots they do attempt are pretty pretty poor. Um, fourth for shots against, which says they don't concede many shots. But, you know, Josh, I appreciate it's a small sample size, but it doesn't paint a good picture of a team, that does it? No, their performance numbers just aren't very, very good, to be honest. I think that, that expected goals per shot number, you know, the fact that the bottom of the table for that, with an average expected goals per shot of... 0.06, you know, the average shot that you take has a 6% chance of going in compared to currently Spurs and Leicester. Funnily enough, Spurs are being led by the manager that United sacked last. Mm. Um, you know, they've got an XG pair shot of 0.14, so there's a 14% chance of those shots going in. On average, that's a, that's a big difference. That's more than double the, the, the quality. Um. But I also think that comes back to, you know, rather than just Mourinho, I do think it comes back to Spurs in terms of their ability to build a squad. It is better than, than United's ability. United mm. just, they, they cannot squad build. Like one of the reasons they were hanging on at the end of last season to a top four place wasn't because they just stopped playing. It was because their initial first 11, funnily enough, similar to Everton, they, they, they were just playing every game, every single game. And the backups 
weren't the same profiles, weren't the same quality. And I thought the obvious answer this summer was for United to go and buy not another attacker, but another two attackers for me. I think they should have bought Sancho and they should have bought another. Um, just so that they've got like a bit of variety in attack. They've got like the options that Liverpool have got and City have got. As many as like six attackers who, who can all come on and do something. And you know, we saw Liverpool the other day being able to bring on Shakiri and Jota against West Ham. I think it was to change the game. United they're doing it, but if they bring on Van der Beek, the chances are Bruno or Pogba is is coming off. Um it's just it's just a messy a messy club at the minute. And I think that if any club is, is, is a perfect example of this, it is United in terms of almost signing the wrong player. It is worse than signing no player at all. And I think I thought they'd realised that until they went and signed, you know, a, a number 10 that they don't really need. And Edinson Cavani, who you could argue they needed a forward. Obviously, they lost the Gallo on loan and stuff like that. But, you know, just... Get get someone more suited. Get someone better. Do do you do your due diligence almost in the in the market? But it it, it looks like a it looked like a lazy move. You know, it was all done late in the window and mm. just a, a bit of a a bit of I, a bad process at the minute at the club. Yeah, I I mean, in my opinion, on that point that you're saying, I think the issues they they have in terms of the recruitment does in part come on to. Um, what I think is a bit of a mixed philosophy under Solskjaer. Uh, I actually wrote about it this week. Um, Sam McGuire's newsletter, the marginal pains, once on me on my Twitter. Um, but the, he's caught between philosophies, I think, because the evidence suggests since he's come in at United, he wants to be a. Uh, um, he wants to kind of. Implement, implement a football and philosophy that mirrors the top teams. So, you know, like your cities, Liverpool's, and that normally involves um, controlling and dominating matches. So, you know, you'll you'll see a lot more of the ball than the opposition. Um, you'll go short from goal kicks. You'll then press high up the pitch, play a high defensive line. And it's clear that United are doing that or trying to do that on the Solskjaer. But then... In, in tougher fixtures, they almost default to this um, blueprint of playing the, a, a counter-attacking game because obviously we know they've got pace in attack with the likes of Rashford. But there's two really contrasting tactics, aren't they? If you think about it, one's to be like so control and dominate and other one's to be sitting quite deep and try to hit teams on the counter. And I think how that impacts recruitment um, is, say, for example, Harry Maguire. Um, if you think of Maguire, I think Maguire is a really good defender in a team who likes to sit deep because I think he's really good in the air. I think he's a decent tackler. Um, you know, I think he's all around well-built to deal with balls into the box and things. But playing on the halfway line, I think he, he isn't a great defender. I think he, you know, he, do, he doesn't have pace, does he? So he gets brutally exposed doing so. I think if 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 you if United are just a little bit more distinguished in the way they wanted to do things, whether that be through you know filtering down from the, the top of the club or just with Solskjaer, I think uh, it'd be a lot easier for them to recruit 
Because even now, we you know we can talk about Everton and we have an idea of what formation they're going to play. We talk about Liverpool, we have an idea of what formation they're going to play. You talk about United, and I think they've played three or four different formations across the last four games. And I'm not saying you can't be versatile to try and nullify your opponents, but I think they're just taking it to the extreme. And that may explain why you see in one week they're going and beating PSG and RB Leipzig. But then you've got home games against the likes of Arsenal. I'm not saying it's a given, but there's the examples against lesser sides where they go and drop points or even get beat. Um, and I think that's where United are. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there about the fact that they've used all different systems and stuff like that. I mean, uh, different formations, sorry. I think that, again, stems stems from not buying the players that, that you need, really. Like, if they, if they went and bought... Jaden Sancho and, and, and almost nobody else. They probably stick with a 4 2 3 1. Sancho goes to the right of that 4 2 3 1. Maybe then your first sub is Mason Greenwood. Um, but bringing in Van der Beek, um, it's resulted in, and, and Pogba not being in particularly great form, it's resulted in Solskjaer almost having to play, play with the initial system he'd established. And I think now they've been starting to use like a diamond and stuff. and the sign of mix, he, he's now having to um, almost do what Frank Lampard's doing at Chelsea and find a, a way to get all his best players in the same team whereby they can all play well. But that's a, that would have been a lot easier to do if he just went and bought the players they needed. Like some people in, in this situation are inclined to blame Solskjaer, some people will blame the club. For, for me, I will, I, I'm more inclined to blame the club. I do think Solskjaer is a problem, I think his ability to coach. A dominant team to break down a block in particular is is not good. Um, I don't think United are very good at that at all. But he's a product of the problem for me, Solskjaer. I think the, there's only so many managers you can go through before you need to look at yourself and think, hang on, are we doing this right? Because Mourinho didn't do particularly well. Van Gaal didn't do particularly well. Moyes didn't. And now Solskjaer isn't. Um, and I think it all, it all stems back to, to just... Almost like a, they're almost incapable of of recruit recruiting and squad building in in a way that is is good enough to to deliver a title winning side. They mm. seem to always have weaknesses, and they seem to usually have more weaknesses than strengths. Um, yeah, just a frustrating frustrating club at the minute, uh, and I find myself caught between two posts in terms of being happy that they're not doing that great because a to the a big rival side and Beatty had 20 years of success under Ferguson. But the the other side of me is just like, well, you know, you get what you deserve in a way. I mean, you, you're not you're not doing enough to deliver success at the minute. I mean, they're still trying to recruit analytics departments and all that by the sounds of it. And, you know, other top clubs have had that sort of stuff in place for years. Mm. Um, even if, even the likes of Barcelona, even though it's not particularly used over there, Barcelona's analytics department's, you know, incredible. Mm. United just, they seem to be run like like a business as opposed to like a sports institution. Um, and that's why, from my perspective, looking at FSG at Liverpool, some Liverpool fans have got issues with FSG. One of my biggest reasons behind supporting FSG is that they've always run Liverpool like a sports institution, looking for edges, looking for marginal gains, thinking about the sporting side on the pitch and United seem to turn their attention to that every two years, two or three years or so. But then in between, they wonder why things are going wrong. 
rip it up and start again. Mm. You you do wonder if for all the the success it brought them, you do wonder if kind of those late late noughties and early starts of this decade still having Ferguson as such like set principles in the way. You do wonder if that's harmed their progression post Ferguson. You know, when other clubs have had to move with the times and implement these new things, it does feel like that held them back. Um, certainly as a big club, you know, for the for, for size, you know, medium-sized clubs, it, you're always playing playing catch-up. But when he left, they were at the top of the game and really they should have just went and solidified that even after a small transition period and they just haven't and now they look like they're playing catch-up. But... Um, switching obviously attention back onto Saturday's game, um, you know, despite all the um, criticism, I guess we've just given United, they do have some really good players. You know, they still have a fantastic squad on paper. The likes of Marcus Rashford and stuff, Mason Greenwood. Um, there's some real threats, isn't there? And especially, I think pace is going to be a problem for Everton's defence because. Although Keane's been playing really well, I think Keane, yeah, Remina, there's not a ton of pace in the team and that could be could be a problem. Is there anyone off the top of your head, Josh, that you think could, could be an issue for Everton this weekend? Well, I think one of the major issues is that, I, am I right in saying Martial's back? Uh, I think he is, actually. Let me Google that. Pretty sure he's had three games out. So mm. the, the fact that Martial's back moves Rashford to the left, probably... Mm. Put Greenwood on the right, put Bruno as a 10, and then the midfield two is either going to be Fred and McTominay or, or maybe Pogba will be in there. Mm. Um, but that would allow United to play with their favoured system, the system that beat Leipzig by five goals to nil. Um, I suppose it's similar to Everton in a way with Jarlison being out, you know, Martial, I suppose, is vaguely similar in, in terms mm. of the, the impact he has on United's attack. So having him back. And Everton being without the Charles, and I think I think still without Hammers as well. Is that, is that right? So just whilst we're being recording the show, um, the Echo have, have said basically that the that they think he's going to be available, which will be good. Um, okay. Obviously, it's a little bit difficult for us. I hope everyone listening can appreciate that. That you know we're in the middle of the show and it's still early on, so we won't know for sure. But hopefully, by the time you're listening, um, you'll be able to. You'll be able to know that he is fit. So, um, and and Lucas Dean's back. Mm, yeah, he is back. Yeah, that so that three game ban initially has gone down to one game. So you you are getting at worst, you know, two two key players back. Yeah, no, that's that's. I was initially going to say, I mean, it might still be the case without without Richarlison, but I was initially going to say that I think maybe to get some to be competitive here and to get some points. Maybe you know, uh, maybe Everton would have to play in a similar way to how Duncan Ferguson's side played at Old Trafford, almost be by kind of almost conceding possession, sitting in a bit of a a bit of a mid block and and not allowing United to use the space in behind and stuff, and kind of getting United on the break. Um, mm. Obviously, with Everton start of the season, they kind of dominated most of the ball against Southampton and Newcastle and played like the dominant team, but. I think in this match, to stop United using their main strength, maybe Everton would have to play a bit like Chelsea played two weeks ago, I think it was, 
mm. where Lampard was clearly mindful of the counter attack, dropped back a little bit, and maybe wasn't as as attacking in this game. Because um, I think United, are, if they can do anything, they can certainly punish it on the break. Mm. Yeah, I agree. There's a there's definitely still some threat there, despite. You know, despite some some clear issues they have, and it will be interesting. But we'll we'll we better round it off there because I was expecting a little bit of a shorter show today, and we're, we're not far off the hour mark. Um, we'll we'll finish with a verdict. I'll I'll go first, Josh. Um, I think it's an important game not to lose after losing two back to back international break as well. So you don't want to be mulling over a loss either. Um, I'm going to go with a repeat of last season's scoreline and go for a 1-1. Yeah, this is a tricky one to predict this. Um, you know, a lot is starting to depend, from my prediction at least, a lot is starting to depend on, on how Angelosi uses the squad and, and the, the players he picks. Um, because I haven't liked the selection in the past two games. With Digne back, that would be good. With Hammers back, even better. Still don't have that penetrating runner in behind. Maybe Gordon would be given that role. Uh, United with Martial back. Sicky one. Really sicky one to predict this. Mm. Um, I think I'm going to lean on one all as well. But, um, yeah, it's a sicky one. I, I feel it, it feels like it could be snatched by either side, I suppose. Mm. But uh, I, I think I'm going to go one all with the bag and stuff. Yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll have to wait and see. But we'll, I assume we'll probably review that in next week's show. Although, with it being the international break, we'll have to work on the logistics of that behind scenes. But for today, at least, um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, don't forget to reach out and let us know if you enjoyed the show. Um, of course, as always, thank you to Josh. Nobody's mate, yeah. <laughs> And um, enjoy your, enjoy the rest of your week, everyone, and hopefully a win on the weekend. Cheers. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.